What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Mixtapes. I'm your host, Eric Stanglin. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to everybody that's been listening, that's been downloading, that's been sharing everything on social media. Really appreciate it. And we've got a wonderful guest today. My guest today is an award-winning writer, author, TV host, and he's a co-host of the DLR podcast, which is probably my favorite podcast out there right now. So excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to the show, Mr. Darren Paltrowitz. How are you doing today? Wow. That is one of the nicest introductions I could have ever gotten, Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, how do you find out about the DLR cast? That, that part I like to find out whenever possible. Well, I think it's from the, uh, the anointed Van Halen um, uh, basically spokesperson now, Mr. Greg Renoff. I think that's how I, <laughs> I think that's how I found out about you guys. Because, um, you know, Greg's awesome to the Van Halen community. Um, he's yeah. written a couple of great books. And uh, he's always really kind and generous with how he shares information on the Internet. So he shared yeah. some posts that I've done, like, you know, me playing some Van Halen riffs or whatever. And um, he's shared a lot of people's stuff. And I think that's how I found you guys. Cool. I, I don't know if you're a wrestling fan per se. If you're if you're not, tell me you're not. But are oh, you I am. I grew up in New Jersey watching WOR nine. I, wow. I watched a ton of wrestling in the eighties and early nineties, man. Okay, WOR, which gave us the Howard Stern TV show. But I look <laughs> at Greg as a positive, awesome version of Dave Meltzer. Like Dave Meltzer is to the wrestling industry as Greg Renoff is to the Van Halen industry, except he's and, and I've interviewed Meltzer before, but Greg is just this positive, inquisitive, historically minded genius. And he Ooh. loves Van Halen. Yeah. Like, yeah. absolutely loves Van Halen. It's, uh, I, had, uh, I had Max Volume on the show. Uh, Great episode. Week. Compliments to you for taming Max. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it was really cool hearing those stories because I've known Max for years. But the, yeah. some of those stories that he told, I was like, wow, like you really knew those guys. You know what I mean? You really hung out with those guys. And the, it, it's just, it was amazing to pick his brain. But I feel like Greg is so authentic in terms of like the love. And, and it comes through in the, in the totally. book he wrote, Van Halen Rising and, and the Ted Templeman book too. It's just absolutely brilliant. So the first question I was like asking my guests um, yeah. is, when do you remember your first musical memory? First musical memory. I mean, I remember, and I don't know if my age is going to offend people. I'm 39, almost 40, but music has been the obsessive hobby for me for more of my life than not. I don't remember why I remember this, but the rock, uh, the, the, the Cradle of Love video by Billy Idol while I was waiting for kindergarten. Nice. And that's not too far off from when I really remember picking up Jump. Nice, nice. Jump was my first introduction to van halen i was a late bloomer to to van halen and uh i remember mm -hmm. seeing the video and seeing eddie and and just going that's what i'm doing like i just knew i was yeah. nine i was nine years old and i was like that's what i'm doing there was just no turning back so my next question leads off is did you pick up an instrument slowly after you kind of got into music or no it was some years later. My parents were insistent on piano lessons first and foremost. Like, I wanted to play guitar. Okay, well, learn piano first. Oh, God, me too, man. Me too. The war. <laughs> and you, the war. Did you end up learning piano at all first? Like, did you? I did, but I'm not. I, I don't like it. My my brother is a really accomplished, renowned choral director and musician. My sister went full ride to school on bassoon. Oh wow! And I'm like the the weird punk rock 
metal offspring that can play that has natural ability but is an ear player my wife is a classically trained piano player but i just my attention span is too poor to follow rules aka reading music yeah well reading music i mean for guitar is it's a whole different yeah whole different beast man it's one of those things where it's like i really don't even feel like you know music writing music was meant to read on the guitar especially you know how eddie changed the game pretty much in terms of yeah <laughs> welcome oh, tablature thank you eddie van halen that was like the <laughs> lifesaver for me when i was a kid for sure because i was uh it's almost like we were buddies man growing up because my folks my mom wanted me to get in a piano we had a piano in the house my mom played my aunt played my yeah. grandfather played i think um but not like serious right but they were like oh if you can play the piano if you do that then we'll get you a guitar because they thought i was gonna you know, do drugs and drop out of high school if I play guitar, you know. So that was uh, that. I mean, when I was nine, I wanted to get one. I didn't get one until I was 13. So I, I, was I me too. I was 14. I was late 13 or early 14 when I started playing uh, guitar and I wanted to play bass first. And then I was told, hey, you can't play guitar. You can't play bass unless you play guitar first. Like, oh, okay. So this is the second time I'm being restricted on instruments. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know what's funny, man, is like you would have been the most popular kid on the block if you were a bass player because that's what everybody was looking for a bass player is everybody played guitar. <laughs> could be. Could be. I consider myself really a bass player more than I do a guitar player. But uh, you know, I, I don't play as much as you, per se. You know, you're a real, real, real guitar player, per se. But I'm always thinking about the guitar. Part. I have relative pitch, so I will listen to songs and I'll go, OK, uh, that's a half step down. It's a one, four, five. But I don't need to pick up the guitar to practice, if that makes any sense. No, it makes complete sense. Absolutely. It makes complete sense. So you obviously are a writer. When did you realize you wanted to be a writer? Was it something in like high school journalism class or was it something where you were reading a bunch of uh, Hip Raider and Cream and Rolling Stone magazines? Like how did you get into wanting to be a writer? Now this, you're going to notice a theme here. Almost every English teacher I had told me I can't write. Uh, the high school newspaper teacher told me I couldn't write. But I was actually writing in high school for this local newspaper. So unfortunately, I'm one of those like don't follow the rules, persistence kind of people. Right, so, right. So when I was 16, I started writing for this local newspaper and that wasn't enough. And I started writing for this punk rock scene here on Long Island and this early website. And I started doing that and interviews started a year or two later. I was terrible the first few years as an interviewer and definitely not good as a writer, but I never quit. So it was I, why do I want to do it? Because I want free CDs and free tickets and to, to speak to some of my heroes. And that was kind of the gateway. And they never stopped giving me stuff. And here we are. <laughs> I love that, man. That's such a cool story. Do you? You probably do. It's probably a stupid question to ask you. But do you remember your first interview? I remember my first interview was with Michael Wildwood, who was the drummer in Degeneration. Okay. Do you remember Degeneration? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse Mallon's band that he likes to pretend does not exist uh, <laughs> <laughs> and had that song in the movie Airheads, but it yeah. wasn't credited to them. <laughs> and he was the drummer in a band at the time called Chrome Locust, which Todd Youth, who played with Danzig and Ace Frehley, he was the singer of. And that was the first one. And then right off the bat after that, I had Jason Schwartzman, 
the actor when he was still in the band Phantom Planet. And that one has never been released. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Now, were you um, when you were doing these interviews when you first because obviously the landscape has changed so much. I mean, we're talking yeah. on Zoom right now. Right. So when you're doing these interviews, is it over the phone? Is it in person? Like, how are you? How are you conducting these interviews at first? Back then, it was 99 percent phone. And every now and then my boss at the time would go like, you really should speak to this person in person. And then eventually it got to be a mix of phone, email, and in person. Then I kind of, and this is more than you asked. Then I kind of got lazy at a certain point. I went, I hate my voice. I don't want to listen to my voice. Why don't I just email these questions? Then I don't have to transcribe them. Interesting. Then I kind of realized the value in having the, the recording of the whole thing. So I've kind of cycled and done it all over the years. Nice. Is there a particular one nowadays that you like doing the most? I like doing the Zoom because uh, you don't interrupt people as much because you have the facial cues to the whole thing. I find that sometimes if the person has a bad phone connection, you know, I've had to scrap interviews over the years because the phone connection was terrible. And you don't like know when the person's done talking if there's a bad connection or you haven't quite picked up on the person's like rhythm yet. Yeah. And sometimes if you only have 10 minutes with the person, you're not going to pick up on it. So it never gets good. But if you have the Zoom, at least you have the visual to know if the person's in a good or a bad mood. If you're dealing with an Ingve type, <laughs> oh, oh! So you've interviewed Ingve then? Twice, both by phone. Once was a disaster, and the other time, I guess he was nice because I was more prepared. But I still didn't. I was interrupting him still, you know, because I didn't have the visual. Yeah, it's hard, man. I I host a I co-host a basketball podcast too, and we've been. Doing, oh yeah, yeah, we're doing that for a couple of years. It's called Not My House. The uh, <laughs> Kenbe Matumbo reference in the title. We, there? Yeah, we actually in the beginning we do. It has Matumbo's voice saying "Not in my house." And nice. uh, and uh, it's kind of hard. You're right because there's been a couple where people just like will always do Zoom so we can record, but then there'll be people that don't want to do their face. So you'll just look at uh, like a, a fake picture or something or a, a basketball, or, and you're just kind of going, "Man, how do I get this rhythm? How do I get the timing? How can I tell if they're interested or not?" So the visual. I mean, helps tremendously. You know, we've never done, we've always used Zoom because when we started, it was basically the pandemic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which I think changed the game a lot for, at least for us it did because we seemed to be able to get more guests because more people had time on their hands, right? Exactly. Where they, you couldn't go anywhere. So more people like, you know, we've interviewed Hall of Famers and things like that. And they're like, I couldn't believe they were available. I'm like, wow. Like, we're talking to Oscar Schmidt, the guy that, you know, is in the NBA. No, not the NBA. The, the NBA, not the NBA. Geez. The National Basketball Hall of Fame. And this guy has the most points scored of all time. And we're talking to him in Spain on Zoom. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. You know what I mean? So I guess another question I'd love to ask you is you've written a lot of articles for famous publications. Which one have you never written for that you still like to be published in? Mm, that's a great question. I don't have the answer to. I'm one of those kinds of people that someone goes, do you want to do this? And I go, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I say yes to most things, not out of desperation, but because I like to try new things in that sense. Do I like to try new food? No. Uh, I'm I'm pretty rigid about a lot of things, but creative endeavors. It's have you ever done that before? No. Have you ever spoken to a member of Sticks before? 
well, yes, but from that lineup, no. So cool. <laughs> for better and for worse, you know, any publication that reaches out that's interesting or cool and or gives creative freedom, I'll do it. All right. I got to ask this question just for me personally. Um, sure. I, I always dreamed about being in Guitar World ever since I picked up the guitar in the late 80s. Who did you end up interviewing for Guitar World, if you don't mind me asking? There was a bunch of them for a while before they ghosted me. I'm going to throw them under the bus because them and Guitar Player, uh, they both find me very ghostable, I would say. Really? So I think the last Guitar World thing I did was with Kevin Cronin from REO Speedwagon. If not the last, I was one of the last. And he was delightful. Nice. He's one of those guys that maybe you don't love the music as much as you do a Van Halen or a Kiss. But the humor is there. He remembers everything. He's got stories, etc. That's so cool. It was there. Uh, did you get to interview anybody that you really dug as a guitar player when you when you did those Guitar World or Guitar Player interviews? Guitar World, Guitar Player. The the two, I believe, the two guitar player pieces I did were Dave Davies from the Kinks, who was oh, wow. super cool. Nice. It was that was like a weird pressured thing. It was like. Mr. Davies only has this amount of time and he will only talk about blank. And then you get him on the line. He's like, I got all the time in the world you want. Ask me anything you want. So a, a lot of times you are trained to like fear the person that you're interviewing. And then once you get on the line, you get the exact opposite vibe and you go, okay. So was I a lie to? Is the publicist protective of the whole thing? That's one of the biggest challenges of what I do. And so, like I mentioned Inge before, the second time I spoke with him, there was a time limit to it, but he was super friendly and open. Like I was waiting for the shoe to drop and I'm like, no, he's nice. Uh, that's, that's such a great feel when you have those interviews where you just know you can ask what you want to and, and they're receptive on the other end of it too. That's just super cool, man. Uh, yeah, so. I, I find like as a wrestling fan, the bad guys in real life are the nicest and the good guys are generally the prima donnas with the time limits. So any member I've spoken with of the Eagles has been so not nice and unpleasant. Really? <laughs> and we're trained to think like the Eagles are the good guys. <laughs> but not so much. I, I've heard uh, I heard Rick Rude when he was still alive was one of the nicest guys for being a humongous heel. I heard he was just super cool. Totally, totally. I don't think I've ever had a bad interaction with a heel or a bad guy, wrestling bad guy, in real life. And good guys, oof. Really? Old, uh... <laughs> They're so sick of playing good guys, right? <laughs> It rubs off on them the other way. That's amazing. Well, um, let's let's talk about the podcast that I love to death, the DLR podcast. Oh, um, thank you, Eric. Oh, I really do. It's it's. I've listened to pretty much. I think every episode. It's. Uh, I I do a lot of walking, running, biking, things like that, and that's a lot of the time where I listen to podcasts. It just seems like where my head's the clearest, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, how did you and Steve come up with the idea of starting the pod? So Steve, one of the nicest guys, I hope you do get to speak with him in the near future. Steve and I connected because when I put out my second book, which was called uh, Great Advice from Pro Good Advice from Professional Wrestling, trust me, it's not all wrestling here. This is just how it shapes up. Yeah. He had me on his podcast and his last name is Roth, Steve Roth. And I figured out somewhere along the way that he wasn't just a, a cheap trick fan 
or a Van Halen fan. He was a DLR fan. So I jokingly said, hey, you know, <laughs> we should start the Roth cast, the DLR cast. It's Roth talking about Roth. And Steve is one of those guys that just goes, okay. And we did. And I think everyone, as you said before, everyone had some time for new projects during the pandemic. And we started it. And then I kind of realized that some of the people that I was going to be interviewing anyway had Roth ties and we could get them. And I was able to call in some favors, get some interviews. And I think we're at episode 50, something around there. We have another one that's in the can that we taped earlier this week, which will come out any day. We have a couple of interviews that I've taped within the last week that are future episodes. So I don't know when it's ending, but we definitely did not start it to think that there'd be 50, 60, 70 episodes. Well, I hope I hope it doesn't end, man. Is there any any I mean, besides Dave and I know you interviewed Dave um, I, I, before a long time ago. Yeah. But is there anybody that you're really wanting to speak to from that Dave camp that you haven't yet? There's so many damn people. There's so many damn people that I want to speak with. And believe you me, I've reached out or tried to reach out to just about any of them. You know, like anybody who's managed Dave, what was that like? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have the feeling that we don't know the names of all the people who've managed Dave. Like we know about Matt Sencio, but I've never seen an interview with him. I haven't seen a Pete Angelus interview in the last couple of years, et cetera. So there's those people. There's been a couple of people who've worked on video projects for Dave. One of them's like, yeah, sure, when? And then kind of ghosted me. Another one is like, you want me to say nice things about Dave? Oh, like, wow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <You know>. uh, <laughs> I, I was Facebook added by a lead guitarist of his who said, yeah, when do you want to do it? And then ghosted me. <laughs> oh, it, dude, that happens a lot, doesn't it? And yeah. it's like, you know, starting this podcast that I, I've been doing it for a couple months. And it's funny how, you know, some people will be really nice and they'll reply back to you. Some people will come on the show. Some people will ghost you. And it's, 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 I, I'm glad to hear that it, it's not just me. Thank God. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's really funny because, you know, your, your pod, I think is super fair. And I think it's really cool. And uh, like the rocket one that you did with his kid. Man, oh, we're talking you. about the bus and and uh, oh, here he comes and whatnot. And yes. <laughs> I was just like, oh wow. But I, what I think is cool is for fans like you know, I mean, I'm a huge, I've been a huge Van Halen fan, a huge Dave fan forever. It's yeah. kind of a cool, you know, look inside the curtain, you know, seeing pulling back the curtain, seeing like how everything works in terms of a touring band, a famous band, like you know, somebody that's had a career for man, what six decades now, five decades. Yeah. When you think about it, so it's I love that's why I love your show because you always get these guests where I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this. Oh yeah, that's kind of cool because I saw the first time I saw Roth was in '91. Saw the wow. Cinderella. So you're the guy who saw that tour. I saw Cinderella Extreme, <laughs> Cinderella Extreme, Dave Lee Roth at the Garden State Art Center in Homedale, New Jersey. Okay, so I just learned from an interview that it's not going to go in the DLR, uh, DLR cast, but it's going to go somewhere else that I eventually publish it. Trickster was offered that tour and declined it, and Extreme took it. Did you know that one? I did not know that, which is really crazy because Steve Brown's like the biggest, you know, Eddie Van Halen fan. And oh, you've yeah. Seen, you've seen the video of him trying to, him playing Eddie's guitar, just hopped up on stage at the Meadowlands. I was like, 
pick an 88, it's yeah. you get humbled to death for, I, from that. Oh, I, I'm, un, unreal, man. And then he goes on to what he does. You know, it's um, I think Joe Holmes was the guitar player. And for some reason, when I was listening to your podcast, I could have sworn there was two guitar players that night. I, uh, for that tour, yeah. here's what I'm gathering, because you you are pinpointing my obsession, which is the revolving door of the lost years of David Lee Roth. Yeah. So what I'm gathering because there's no real documentation. Dave is not documenting this era of his life really well. It sounds like Terry Kilgore was in and out of the band. It right. sounds like Desi uh, rocks with two X's, R-O-X-X, because one X is not enough. Not enough for rock. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he was in and out of the band as well. All you know, Jason Becker was just on the studio album. Right. And it sounds like Rocket was in and out as well. And it also sounds like the tour got canceled in the middle of it, like it did really well in Europe, and then it floundered in the US. So I'm still chasing down people to try and figure out, okay, so the Little Ain't Enough tour, were there two guitarists or three? <laughs> did the tour get canceled or moved? Was it successful, not successful? There's so many conflicting answers I'm finding. Okay, from what my memory and that was a long time ago. From my memory, and there was a lot of weird rumors, which is really funny, that like, you know, kids telling high school where it's like, oh, we can't play any of the Van Halen stuff. And I, I'm pretty sure they opened for, with Hot for Teacher or something. For, and I was like, oh my God, they're going to play Van Halen. Like we were so excited, right. you know. From my memory, there was two guitar players. And the only reason why I remember that is because I am a guitar player. And, and back yeah. then, I've been playing for three years and was super obsessed with Van Halen and, and Dave Lee Roth and Vi. And I remember them having two guitar players to cover, basically, it seemed like to cover Eddie, essentially, like, I think he wanted that bigger sound. And I know Joe Holmes is one of them. I know that. For, yeah. I know that for a fact. Um, but I do not remember the second guitar player, unfortunately, but I'm almost positive there was two on that tour, because I think it that was, was a, probably that was... probably Desi rocks. But it's interesting. You you're bringing up something there. Roth has had two guitar players a number of times in his career, possibly this 91 tour. The early 2000s, after the Sam and Dave tour, he had Brian Young and Toshi Hikeda. I saw that tour. Yeah, great tour, right? Dave. I, well, tour. I saw it a year before. So a year before he um, rejoined Van Halen, I saw that tour at a casino in Reno. And oh. it, it was weird because it was like the weirdest venue to put him in. And I had a friend that worked there that got me comp tickets, eighth row. I was so excited. And then the security just didn't give a shit. So we basically were like front row, like they just didn't stop anybody. So we were a front row. He definitely had those two guitar players and he played everything Van Halen except for um, he did Just Like Paradise. And I think that might have been the only tune he did and maybe Yankee Rose, but the rest was Van Halen. And, and I looked at my buddy, I go, he's going to rejoin Van Halen. I'm like, it sounds like it sounds like this is the warm up tour for him. Because he sounded really good. I know Roth gets a lot of crap for not sounding great and whatnot. He sounded really good yeah. on that on that tour. It, he really did. That is the thing that Steve and I talk a lot about, that when Eddie Trunk and a lot of people talk about, well, Dave has never been a great live singer. Listen to the DLR band album, Blacklight. He's doing his Robert Plant higher register stuff. Listen to any of... Listen to that Carson Daly performance where they did Mean Streets in, in Mean Street in like 2003, 2002 or 2003. When he wants to sing, he is a monster. 
Completely agree. Completely. And, he, and, and you know what? I saw the – it was 08 when I saw the reunion. I saw it in Sacramento. And yeah. honestly, that was the thing I was most impressed with with the show was Roth's voice. Like yeah. Eddie, Eddie had kind of an off night to a degree. Like he was still amazing, but it was like – it was a little bit of an off night for him. But Dave's voice was the thing I was impressed with the most. And the other thing that's hard too is sometimes it's hard to – like listen to people that don't play instruments be subjective about people's voices or guitar playing and stuff like that because they don't really have the understanding of you know what they're hearing if that kind of makes sense you know um yeah and, and, and really i've been lucky all three times i've seen roth he sounded good like i i i skipped with the 12 or the 15 tour i was gigging a lot so i didn't honestly have a lot of free time too but one of those tours, he was sounding a little not so good. And the I last I, tour. Yeah, yeah, and I think I chose not to go, which I'm kicking myself in the butt for because obviously Ed's no longer with us. Um, but yeah, it, it, I don't understand that hate for that because when the when I mean even the early Van Halen stuff, like you've heard, I'm assuming you've heard the boots, the bootlegs when they were club days. I haven't listened to them a thousand times. Oh, the glitter demos. Like I haven't listened to this stuff more than once or twice per se, but anyone who's like doing five sets a night for 45 minutes is going to learn how to sing. <laughs> oh, it, I've done it, man. I've played the five forty fives. It's not easy. And then when you're doing it multiple nights a week, you, I mean, it's the same thing with Michael Anthony, all the Michael Anthony hate that he got for not being a good bass player. If you really listen to those Van Halen records, those early Van Halen records, Mike's a lot better than people realize. You know what I mean? T totally. Yeah, and again, like if you play that much, if, you're just going to be good. Now, you may not be able to improvise perfectly, but you're going to learn whatever it is that you can do. So I never understood, and Greg Renoff, you know, who we talked about before, has talked about this. Why all the Michael Anthony hate? How is that the one guy who's your sworn enemy? Oh, the nicest guy in the world, right? Like <laughs> the, the nicest guy in the world. It's, it's uh, the, you know, the Van Halen camp, though, has been so interesting. It's, it's the one band that people love so much, but their internet presence really wasn't yeah. a blip on anything. And Roth's kind of like that too, which is really interesting too, because there's so many people that still like Roth, you know, and the internet thing is really not there. So that's got to make your job even harder to try yeah. to put that together on going, all right, who played here? Who played what? What, you know? Um, another question I'd love to ask you is sure. is there a certain record? after you started the podcast that you appreciated more i know a little enough for, was a record that i appreciated more after listening to you guys i i kind of went back and thank you i got excited because you, you you're interviewing these really cool guys and they're telling these really cool stories and i'm like you know what i should go back and listen to that record and so i would go back and i listen to almost every record again i i i have a soft spot for skyscraper i really dig skyscraper so that wasn't a one i had to go back to i'm like one of the few guitar guys that actually thought skyscraper was a great record but um, i really like that it's uneven but it, i like that album it, a lot it's like he's he's like he's ahead of the game on some stuff and i think that that didn't resonate with guitar players because they want to eat him a small part two you know what i mean but like hina an amazing yeah. song skyscraper is an amazing song there's a lot of great stuff on that record but a little enough was that record for me where when i first heard it i i liked I liked three songs off it, and then as I got into it more, especially after listening to your pod, I liked it a lot more. I was like, and then I started like trying to figure out how much of did Jason Becker really play on that record, 
because I only thought it was on a little ain't enough dropping the bucket and it's showtime, but it turns out he played on a lot more of that record. And I didn't realize that. There's so much we don't know about that record. An interview that I taped yesterday as a teaser with a, somebody who sang backup on that record. There's a lot we don't know about a little ain't enough. And I still don't know even after this interview per se, it's just such a mysterious album it's it's the beginning of the dark years, the disappearing kind of years for for Dave. But my record with all that is the DLR band album. So unrelated and not on Spotify. You can find it on Apple Music. I don't know why that is the one portal it is on Amazon Music. Yeah. And it's cut off the last two or three songs on on Apple Music. Oh, really? Not, not even the whole album. So oh. many damn questions. And Dave owns that record. It's oh, outright. He owns the record. I confirmed with John five with an episode that's going to go up. Dave actually made the CDs in his backyard. No way. <laughs> that's, you know, he's such an, he's such an interesting character, man. And I, and I think that's why you've been able to do so many shows on him because I mean, you know, he's rock climbing guy. He's EMT guy in New York city. He's, yeah. you know, he's an author radio guy. Yeah. Oh man. The, did you listen to that radio show when it was live? Did I you... did. And I, at the time as a huge Howard fan, Howard Stern, that is for yeah. people not in the New York area, uh, huge Howard fan. So I'm like, Roth sucks. I, and then now I, I listened to an episode earlier this week. It's great. I he totally was so agree. ahead of his time. It was like podcasting before it's podcasting. Now, some of it doesn't age well. Um, right, right. I, I was listening this week to make a really quick. The I don't know if you're allowed to say the R word, but he says it five different times in this episode. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Including calling Tyra Banks the R word. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, wow. Yeah, you know, I listen to it a lot because um, I grabbed the internet feed. So, because I was living, I was living out west. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so I, I grabbed the internet feed. I was so into that show. Like, I, I, I think I, I think I actually had Sirius or XM just for that show, basically, right? But you are correct. I mean, it was definitely podcasting before podcasting, and you know all the stuff he's doing with the with the little uh, the just releasing random songs, and then there's a yes. ra random video. I'm trying to get that kid that did the video, the the um, the animation video. I'm trying to get him on my pod because I think, like, have you seen that? You know what I'm talking about. The Mojo. Yes, the Mojo Dojo channel. The guy who put all the like compilation of the the music videos and the references. Like, I am. Waldo. It's great. I'm dying to interview him. And he said he would come on. But then that's that like ghosting or not ghosting or not having enough time or whatever. Because we said, I want to come on. But I don't have enough time. I have so many questions. And I know you probably do too. Like did Dave, yeah. did Dave tell you to put all those references in? Or did you put them in and then did Dave okay them? Or did you even let Dave know you did those or did you put some Easter eggs in that no one knows about? I mean, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of questions, man. And I think uh, I think there's always going to be questions with Roth for sure. Um, is there a record that you don't like um, by Dave? Is there one that you just doesn't grab you? I'm not going to say I don't like your filthy little mouth. Steve Roth, my co-host, really gets behind that album. I don't know I if know. he does that to irk me. <laughs> I think. <laughs> 
I think he does that. And then in response, I super get behind Sonrisa Salvaje to kind of cancel. I that. love that you ask about that with certain guests. I love that. That makes me laugh so hard. I, I didn't you. hear that until later, that album. And it's really interesting. I mean, it's... It, I think it was the Billy Sheen one that I listened to with you guys you. where where he was talking about that and it was just uh yeah it's just super cool. So, did you did you did you own that when it came out or when did you get that album? I'm I'm going to admit years later, years later, but I discovered that it was on Sp Spotify was not like street legal here in the US until maybe like 2013, 2012 yeah, something that like seems that. That's about right. But it existed if you had friends in Europe who had share codes in like 2008, 2009. Oh, so wow. I think that that's when I discovered it exists. So like way after the fact. But the, I don't know. I, I love Sorrisa Salvaje because I think it was way ahead of its time. Now, is the Spanish good? The answer I'm getting through many interviews I've done is the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks Spanish. But I'm getting the vibe that A, he had a bad translator, and B, they had to clean up some of the language. Billy Sheen said this because Mexico is a Catholic country and they didn't want to offend people. <laughs> right, right, right. And that record and, definitely has some of that that I could see, right? And bump, he bump also and has to get out a lot of words, too. For, you know, David Lee Roth gets out a lot of words. So it's kind of like, well, what do we have to lose here, but still get the rhythm correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and think about that too, because when you think about other languages, it's like your rhyming words in English, they're not going to rhyme in different languages. So how much does yeah. that change the feel and the dynamic of the record? You but, know, But Yankee Rose is Yankee Rose in Spanish. That's what we learn. Yes. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and I didn't even know until years later that song was actually written about uh, – written about um oh god why am i spacing this right now um didn't he write that about america and uh and um oh my god why am i spacing this right now it's in friggin new york city holy god statue of liberty so i didn't know that part of it but an interview that we recently had with michael musselman who played the 2020 vegas states and and the kiss run wait was it michael i'm pretty sure it's michael musselman i asked like you know, what songs did you rehearse and all that? And what about Yankee Rose? Did you practice that? And he said that Dave said something along the lines of that song should only be played on the 4th of July. And he wasn't kidding. And you're like, what? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> now, you're going to the shows, right? You, I, I think you're going to all of them, aren't you? I'm going to all five of them unless I'm banned. Um I recently told one of the members in the current band that I'm going to all five of the shows. And I think that got like an LOL or a thumbs up, but you know, that, that like somebody else in the band's like, is that the guy who's at all of them? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. Um, where's he playing in Vegas? He's playing at the house of blues inside Mandalay Bay, which I think Sammy just did his uh, residency at Santana has done some residencies at, it's become one of the residency kind of venues. It's like a. Have, have you ever been there? I have. I saw Steve Vai play there. It's a. It's a. It's a nice wow. size room. It's not too big, not too small. It's. It's kind of, and the acoustics are really good. So it's. It'll be a great place to see. Um, you. Uh, any. Any. Any way you're trying to angle to, to interview Dave, 
sometime when you're down there, or or do you think the uh, Las Vegas Journal Review Journal is the only interview he's going to give? I think that is the only interview that he's going to give until he decides. I like crocheting. I'm going to go on the number one crochet podcast. I don't know. My, my wife likes crocheting. I'm trying to think like when he just decides that he likes this one thing. Do you remember when he did those interviews like three, four years ago when he was on like Debbie Millman, who's like a designer? I, I listened to that one. I feel like she was the only one that roped him in. Do you, do you feel that way? Like she really yeah. controlled because she'd be like, now, David. Now, David, and it was almost like it was almost like that was the thing where he was like, "Okay, I'm going to listen. I'm going to stay on." She, I feel like she kept him actually on course compared to a lot of people that have interviewed him. I'd say Mark Marin had a couple of moments of that, like because Roth and his gibberish, like you, you know the the three noun rule. It's like, it's like I don't care if you're Bruno Mars, Michael Jackson, or and then it, he says some kind of a modern hip hop or EDM or your Bugsy Siegel. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then he usually goes, you know what I mean? And Marin wants to goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love Marin's podcast. That's another one I love listening to because Marin's just straight up like he just he just says what he wants to say. You know, I, and I didn't get to yeah. listen to that one because I feel like that one was that one where you had to pay like because he has like does he have a Patreon or something like that? Because I can't listen to that one. I think that was a free to the public one, but after a certain amount of time, maybe he pushes them behind the paywall on an okay. app, oh, okay. but it might be on YouTube still, or it might be in Stitcher premium or something like that. It was really good. It was interesting because Marin, you could tell he's aware of Van Halen, David Lee Roth, but he's not a diehard. See, if I had David Lee Roth on, I'd be asking, so uh, on Edom and Smile, you blank the blank. And he, he probably does not want to talk about Edom and Smile, Skyscraper, or anything that happened more than two months ago. Yeah, I, I believe that. He's a forward guy. Like, you know, he's, and, and he's always been that guy, like we talked about earlier in the pod, where it's like, do you feel like, and, and this is a question I want to ask you, do you feel like in, in his career, he was too ahead of the game too much? And that that's what really kind of put him where he ended up being career-wise? I think that he is too damn smart, way too high IQ. I think he's the opposite of Vince Neal. And <laughs> by that, I mean, Vince Neal, you know, your blonde, pretty guy out front, like, are you all having a good time? Like that kind of a thing. But Vince Neal wasn't bringing any of the creative vision to Van Halen to the table. And that's why all these years later, you see Vince Neal and he's just doing like the same 13 songs and he's yeah. happy with that. Now, Roth, I think, was always trying to innovate. He was always trying to push the ball forward. And that's why he didn't work with a lot of people, aside from Ted Templeman, more than once. It was always, OK, new album, new producer. Uh, new style, new guitar player, always looking for a change. And I don't think that change needed to be done. I agree with you on that. Um, do you, and, and when you talk to Billy, and I don't know how, I can't remember how far Billy went into this. Billy, from what I remember, was never happy with the skyscraper mix. Right. That kind of led him to be out of the band. Um, do you think that, do you, do you think if that band stayed together for one more record, do you think, a little ain't up is different enough where Ross career still stays where it kind of was. I, 
I don't think so. Okay, I think that the greatest music video that David Lee Roth ever did was A Little Ain't Enough. Now, granted, uh, is it offensive for people wearing blackface and having little people being exploited and minorities exploited and women exploited and the fat suit at the end? You know, some people might be offended by that. <laughs> like, I think it's his greatest music video, putting the song aside. And that music video is basically a retread of the Just a Gigolo and California Girls formula. Yep. How many women in bikinis can we get? And how right. many like you're dancing things? Big, and super big trucks. <laughs> totally. It, and I think it's the coolest damn video he did. And the song is accessible. And if that wasn't a hit, I think it's because at that point, Dave was what, 38, 40? That seems about, uh, no, 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 he was younger than that, right? Because Dave's what, only 65, right? Dave is 69 years old now. Oh, is he? Okay. And that was 30, 30 years ago, that record. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you're right about 38. Time, you got to think like when MTV first started, the rumor that I heard, and if, if this is too much of a sidebar, stop me. No, please do. I'm super interested. Okay. So the rumor was that something like one in 10 music videos played by MTV at the beginning was Rod Stewart because he had made more music videos than anybody. So it's kind of like, we don't have many music videos. Okay, let's alternate the Rod Stewart, as opposed to this is what cool young people are going to like. So you look at David Lee Roth in his late 30s. Now, he wasn't far off from some other people, but there were younger people at that yeah. time. And MTV's already always been a youth-oriented thing. So they he got pivoted to being a VH1 artist by age. Right. I remember that. I, I do remember that. That's a great point. And, and, you know, the thing that's also interesting about that time period, and, and I remember this distinctly because I was like a junior slash senior in high school in that time period. Yeah. I don't remember grunge really taking off until I was about, about May of 92. And that range Correct. is where grunge really took off. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, hair, you know, grunge killed hair metal. But I think really no. there was so much of a shift of like – because if you look at 91, and I've been doing a lot of reviews in 91. I did Bad Motor Finger. I did No, no More Tears, you know, the Black Album. 91 is a really weird year for music. I think it's one of the last great, great, great years for music where there's so much eclectic, amazing music that, come, that came out. But – Here's an uh, I haven't heard this opinion much, but I really think hair metal killed themselves when they totally. started to try to get way too serious and they tried to get like bluesy where they didn't get that feel and vibe and like it just kind of took almost like the fun out of it and it was it, I, and that that genre lasted quite a bit. You know what I mean if you think about it. So mm -hmm. as we've looked at music over the years, it seems like it's a four to five year kind of turn around and then things kind of go like grunge was like four or five years new metal was like four or five years and then mm. that type of thing but hair was like you could go back what 83 84 84 right yeah and go all the way to 92 you know what yeah. i mean because it was still i mean when you think about that the use your illusion records even though guns roses really is a hair band those were enormous records yeah you know i mean firehouse had a record that had some hits on it Def yeah. Leppard, Def Leppard's Adrenalize had some hits on it. I mean, it wasn't dead, dead. And I don't think grunge killed it. And, I, and, and a lot of people don't have their timeline right, I don't think, because I think grunge really, that summer 92 was huge for grunge, in my opinion.
100% agreed with everything that you just said. And Roth, I've I've seen video footage of him going going like that. Kurt Cobain killed his career, and I've heard Loverboy say that. I've heard a lot of people say that. And the timeline does not make sense to begin with. And a lot of the great bands of that era either broke up or they changed directions. Like I I love the band Rat. I'm having the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Pierce again later. I love Rat, but that Detonator album co-written with Desmond Child. That's yep. not rock i agree i love desmond child's music and his work and i think he's great but that's a change in direction from where they were now firehouse actually got better as grunge took off that hold your fire record is fantastic yep just wrong place wrong time i mean poison poison with kotzen yeah i mean i mean well-written songs but that's not what that poison audience wanted totally totally agreed and in in this case of Sometimes if the band did the same exact thing the third or fourth time, well, why do we need that the third or fourth time? Uh, Dokken, didn't they first break up in like 87, 88, and then they came back in like 91, and then broke up and then came back like 94, 95 with the grunge albums? I will give you the Dokken timeline because I know it well. Uh, They broke up after uh, Beast for the East, and that was like 89, I believe. And then Don did a solo record. And then yeah. they got back together in 94. And the only reason why I know that is one of my bands opened up for them. Um, and, wow. and everybody was super cool except for Don. Um, <laughs> and uh, Lynch was awesome. Like I got a picture with Lynch and he was really yeah. nice. The only thing that cracked me up about Lynch was I swear to God, he took like an hour and a half to sound check after the band was done. Like dialing his guitar tone. Like to the point where the doors are opening and he's still sound checking, and I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't going to go well for us. You know, the opening band and, Don, and and Lynch is still sound checking. But, yeah, they got back together in, like, 94, 95. They put that one record out. And then, you know, those two guys are like oil and water. You know what I mean? Yeah. They need to, they need to work together, but they can't find a way to work together for a long period of time, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and also another thing that another reason why a lot of these bands declined is the original lineup, somebody departed yep. or there was just some big change. Now, so I don't think the answer was they needed to change songwriters, change directions. And I don't think the answer was they needed to to like have a formula that they kept repeating, per se. I just think that with some of these bands, it wasn't their best work around 91, 92, 93. And that could have just been a dumb A&R guy rejecting records. The, somebody email, somebody who listens to DLR cast told me something that I haven't been able to verify, that both A Little Ain't Enough and Your Filthy Little Mouth were rejected by the record company when they got them. Wow. Don't know if that's true. Don't know if that means that they were A&R'd to death. But... A and R guys, you you know what I'm talking about. Does the average person know what I'm talking about here? Uh, give it to them so they know. Like trickster, give it to them good. Uh, the A and R person, artisan rep- repertoire, signs the band or is at least responsible for the album, like a project manager. So they get the mixes and they go, "Oh, this song's not good. You need another song like this." So sometimes A and R people just go, "Great, fine," and then other times they just go, "Hmm." Give us another 20 songs. Give us another 30. Give us another 40. Oh, give this us a is cherry wrong. pie. Yeah, give us a cherry pie. Exactly. Great answer. And by the way, Warrant, underrated band. I agree. 
I, 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 I really agree. I think that, you know, there's a trilogy that people joke around about. And I just had John Crabby on the show a couple weeks ago. But nice. the, the Crew 94, Winger Pull, and, <laughs> and, that, and that Warrant Dog Eat Dog record are like the underrated, got lost yeah. in time records. And I'll be honest with you, that Warrant Dog Eat Dog record's a good record. Warrant, I thought, Warrant and Rat to me are maybe the two best bands that people think are lightweight pop bands i'd agree the problem with warrant though is, is that they the guitar players didn't play on the records really until the doggy dog records they did not but doggy dog they did play the tracks on yeah and it's and it's a shame too because the guy that played on those first two warrant records killed it mike slamer actually joey allen and eric Turner, I've, I've interviewed Joey, cool guy. He said that they played everything but the solos. But the solos? On okay. those first two. Now, here's the weird part, because I'm obsessive with who I want to interview. Bo Hill has ghosted me, like, yeah, I'll do it. Call me at this time. And then you call, you've reached Bo Hill. Uh, so he did that to me a few times. And then Joey Allen is immediately available in the nicest. Oh, he's so, super cool. Super cool guy. So, you know, as a grown-up, I'm one of those people who's like, well, who are you going to believe? The guy with the allegations who's flighty or the responsible, reliable person? So if Joey Allen is telling me that stuff, I'm going to believe him over Bo Hill. You know what I would too? And, and you know, the interesting thing about Joey that not a lot of people know is he would ended up being a guitar rep for yeah. a bit um, for, oh, God, was it Randall? I can't remember. Or I know he's a drum rep these days, but... Yeah, yeah, he was a guitar rep, and and uh, he, I, he came to this uh, came to dealt with the store that I was teaching at for a bit, and, and really cool guy. I got to open up for them. Really nice guy, and just you know, and it was funny because when I was watching them sound check, I was like, yeah, he's got the goods now. You know what I mean? Like, like he he definitely upped his game playing wise. You can you can definitely tell. But yeah, those three records, man, are the ones that they, they kind of get the lost in time. But I do agree with you. A lot of those those records in ninety one, ninety two. It's almost like that. Can we say can we say Saint Anger is like the midlife crisis Metallica record, right? <laughs> where they're not where they where where they're realizing that System of a Down and Corn and all these bands are like kind of you know rising up. They're kind of like here yeah. and they're trying to, you know. Sometimes it's almost like you, I don't want to say the stay in your lane thing, but it's like it's almost understanding your strengths. Like I don't want to see I don't want to hear you know ACDC sound like Corn. Like I like my ACDC like ACDC and that new record sounds great. It sounds yeah. like ACDC, you know, and I think that's I think that was one of the other issues, too, is too many of those bands were kind of like leaning a little bit grungy when they didn't need to be. You know what I mean? And 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 yeah. the radio and you know this from from dealing with writing and stuff like that is it's almost like the media in a way tells you what you're supposed to listen to and what you're not supposed to like, where it should just be like if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. And I think feel like there's enough, yeah. you know, there's enough enough space for everybody to coexist. And then you just choose what you like and what you don't like, which I think the internet has one of the good things about the internet is it's allowed us to be able to do that. Unlike the bad stuff where guys like us, where we make our living in the arts, like how different is that for you now as a writer with the internet? Like, like let's say, let's go like the last five years. How difficult has it been being a writer with the internet and everything being free and, and places cutting and, you know, basically basically bare bones their staff how how difficult has it been to be a writer in the last couple of years well fortunately about four or five years ago i shifted my full-time living from entertainment 
to being a PI for a full-time living. And then I, I made the writing and the interviews and the podcasting, like I treat it like a full-time job based on the number of hours I spend on the whole thing and the effort and the keeping up, right. but I don't depend on it for money. Now, if I were, I'd be like, okay, so let, next episode of the DLR cast, let's have Jojo Siwa on. And uh, <laughs> no, I, was, I, I wanted to ask you that too, because I saw that on your Twitter that it said was a licensed PI, and I was like, yeah. I wanted to ask you, was that really legit, or were you just joking around because of all the investigating you've done with the DLR podcast? I didn't know. <laughs> oh. Both. And I have to remind that anytime I look up somebody related to it, it is fully legal, uh, authorized using the uh, the databases correctly with the stated legal purpose. A lot of people, some states don't really regulate PI licenses, don't require them. You don't have to keep a paper trail. Like So, so if I ever get audited, I will be able to say, yes, I did that search on that date. And wow. here are the databases I used, and here was the legal purpose of them. Wow. So that said, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's legit. It's, it's an accidental career that started four to five years ago and thankfully overlaps with being a writer researcher. So I think if I were fully dependent on entertainment to make a living right now, I'd be freaked out because yeah. people are not album and career oriented. They're single oriented. And then if it is a legacy artist, they just want to hear the hits. Whereas it used to be like new album every two to three years, world tour for a year. Uh, let's get a bunch of sync licenses to promote the album and make some money. And now it's like, that's a cool song. Like, what? Yeah, <laughs> cool it's song. It's crazy, man. It's like, you know, it's like when you put out records as an artist you want people to listen from front to back and that's why yeah. you take that time to like go all right this song is going here that song is going here and that's why a lot of artists take that time nowadays it's almost like it doesn't even matter which is crazy yeah it's it's a huge bummer because how do i put this i don't think there's any shortage of excellent music being made i think a lot of my all-time favorite bands are still making great music i think there's music along those lines being made there's interesting stuff all the time the problem is there isn't really that curator that filter that you go they said it's great it's great there isn't that anymore so That's it's a, a struggle or it's almost a job to find that great new music but there's so much of it uh, my wife listens endlessly to this uk band called wet leg they're awesome but how would i have ever found out about them you know you know, you make a great point because of the, the 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 generation we grew up on. It was like everything was funneled through MTV, yeah. VH1, or the radio, and then you had the cool kids in your school, like yeah, like the skateboard kids, like oh, check out this band, check out that band. But but you're really correct because without that funnel, and the older you get, you have less of those friends that turn you on to music. It's like there's so much stuff out there. You know, but how do you know where to find it? Like the Apple thing back in the old days where it'd say, if you like this, you might like this. That's how I got turned on to a lot of bands I never would have heard of before. But yeah. I don't even use Apple anymore. I use Spotify. And, and really, yeah. a lot of stuff I listen to is local nowadays. You know, like the local guys in my scene and girls that are putting out great music. That's what I listen to nowadays. Um, can I, I got to ask you about the wrestling book. I have to because um, <laughs> I'm excited to buy it, man. I found out today when I was doing my research about oh, you. you that you did this. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Um, 
How did you – so I know that you're a big wrestling fan, so that answered part of my question, but how did you come up with the idea to do this? The uh, co-author of that book, D.X. Ferris, who's still a, a good friend, who's listened to the DLR cast, who's a big Roth fan, coincidentally, and I think he has a book about the misfits in the works. Oh, so nice. in other words, he's one of us, yes, to put it yes. nicely. He had a book called uh, – Good Advice from Goodfellas, I think that was the name of it. And it was basically taking a bunch of quotes uh, from Goodfellas and how you could do life lessons. So I wound up interviewing him. And when I was asking him a question, he referenced this wrestler named Diamond Dallas Page. Oh, yeah, DDP, right. DDP, who's become a friend. And I said, wait, you're, you're a wrestling fan? And I said, well, have you ever thought about doing this exact book and format, but about wrestling quotes? And he's like, oh, well, you write it. And I think he went telling me that, like brushing me off, like, ah, oh, he'll never do it. I shook him off. And then I gave him <laughs> a bunch of pages and uh, DX edited and really made it better and finished it and put it out through 6623 Press, which is his imprint, which he's done a lot of books through. And that was that. And DDP wrote the forward to the book. How cool is that, man? And now, did you get quotes from people or did you just grab quotes from other books and sources? It was mostly other sources. I think I was responsible for a handful of them. Knowing what I know now, I would have done things very differently and I would have used actually things from my interviews, but hindsight is twenty twenty, and maybe my next book will include quotes that i pulled interviews from hint hint nice nice um out of all the dlr uh podcast interviews do you have one specific one that was your favorite hmm i know probably tough question it is a tough question because i'm of the the i get the vibe you're like this too you're an under promise over deliver kind of guy yeah where you don't tell people that this is the best thing you've done or this is going to be amazing. You just kind of go, eh, it's going to be fun. You do something, then it turns out great. And you wait for the compliments rather than telling people it's amazing. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. So when I was speaking to Greg and Matt Bissonette, I was kind of told like, okay, you only have like 20-ish minutes with them and uh, you know, focus on their new album. And they might be under NDAs with Dave and... So I'm like, oh, new music. Right. And I turned out to like their band. They're called the Red Coats, the Red with two Ds. And I'm like, super have my guard up. And they turned out to be, I like my brother. I get along fine with my brother. But you wish you had the brother relationship that Matt and Greg Bissonette have. They are the funniest, most loving, warm guys ever. They'll talk about anything. They remember everything. Have you ever encountered either Greg or Matt? I have not, but I listened to that episode and I absolutely loved it. And I totally know what you're talking about because you Thank just you. got that. You got that vibe that here's what I've noticed in all the interviews I've done is that you can tell when somebody wants to talk to you and yeah. you can tell when someone doesn't want to talk to you. And those guys were so engaging. Um, I believe that was when they when they also talked about when when uh, Greg got the gig and how he got the gig. With, with Dave, I thought that was just an amazing story. It was just – it was awesome to hear that story. I, I love that episode. I Thank I you. love when you guys interview people that people don't know about and then what they offer to the story. I love those, I love those episodes. There's one or two of those coming. 
it's not like there's like hundreds and hundreds of people behind the scenes with Dave, like to pull the curtain back a little bit. I got some feedback the, the other day from a listener to the show and she goes, love the show. I'm like, thank you so much. She goes, and you don't have any female guests. And I'm like, no, 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 we do have one. She's like, well, I'd like to see more female guests. And then you go, well, how many females did Dave work with who were not strippers? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, he did Roxy Petrucci, who I should interview, but she auditioned for the band and supposedly almost got it, but Bissonette got it. So it's like, okay, there's one, right? Like, he didn't work with Diane Warren. It's like, okay, so maybe there's some publicists, okay, but how many that how many publicists want to go on record? Yeah, like, okay. So the problem was with Dave, of the many, many people he worked with not many people want to go on the record or revisit that period of their life. So it's sometimes you're like, you have to think and you go, who did his wardrobing? Let me look them up. Uh, Did Dave have a vocal teacher? Well, let me find them up. And it becomes this challenge of like, figure out who the person is. How can I get in touch with them if they're still alive? Because I've reached out to a few people and they're like, oh, sorry, they passed away. And you go, oh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, sorry to bring that one up. Yeah. But it's not like he's one of these guys who worked with thousands of people. It's like, it's probably like 300 people ever worked with Dave. And you just have to hope that a lot of them will talk to you. Well, and, and, you know, another thing too, which is unfortunate in, in a lot of that time period it was like the guys only club. There wasn't a lot of yeah. women involved in, and, and which is a shame. You know what I mean? I mean, there was people like Prince that were breaking down those barriers, but yeah. a lot of people, it, it really wasn't. And, and so that's the other hard thing about that. It would be great to talk to Roxy though, to hear, hear about that. And that would have been an interesting choice for his band too. That would have been for, for sure. It would have been a different sound, but she is still drumming at a top level all these years later. She's still super cool. I, you know what? I'm going to send her a note later today and, and see what happens on that. And for all I know, I'll be like, yeah, it was an audition. I don't like to talk about that. <laughs> and then you're like, okay. But it's always cool to like, because like yeah. the one guy you had, and I can't remember his name, uh, but it was a really funny one. It was a two part episode. And he was, uh, it was right Frank around. Meyer? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Where he's like, Frank Meyer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mr. Meyer, Mrs. Meyer. And, so good. and just think about that one. That's Frank Meyer's orbit around David Lee Roth is not documented except for a couple of articles from an out of print publication, a book pitch series of meetings that didn't go anywhere. So it's like he didn't exist if you just read Wikipedia and look at videos and all that. He doesn't exist. Yet he was around Dave a lot from like 97 to 2003. So I feel like the podcast, if we don't get these stories from people, if we don't document this stuff, it dies. No one, it did not exist unless you get these people. So that's, you know, selfishly, I think why we need to to do this because it's not like Dave is sitting around going, hey, that was kind of fun. Throwback Thursday, 1989. Here I am in Reno. No, and he doesn't do any of that stuff. And 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 like you said, you find these people that aren't on people's radars. And to yeah. me, those are the ones that are the most interesting because a lot of times those are the ones that are probably the most open too, I would assume, right? To like talking about that time period. And sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes not though, huh? 
yeah some sometimes people will be like yeah i don't like to talk about dave hey, you know the the person i was alluding to before like one of his video editors i said like i to paraphrase a little differently i said something like i want to talk to you about the couple of years you worked with dave um, you worked on some interesting stuff and don't worry, it'll only be positive stuff, you know, yeah. because I don't know if she's under an NDA and she says positive stuff. What are you on Dave's payroll? Like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then you kind of realize, yeah, this isn't going to be the one. Wow. That's crazy, man. That's because you do hear a lot of stories for sure. Hey, I want to talk about, um, I want to promote you a little bit more for sure. And I want to oh, talk about the, I want to talk about the TV show you do. Can you explain to the listeners what you do with that? Because I think that's really interesting. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, the name is Darren Paltrowitz, and the name of the show is The Paltrow Cast with Darren Paltrowitz. It's like Gwyneth Paltrow with, uh, you know, it's at the end and per se. And I just kind of realized taping all these interviews that were Zoom-based, video-based, like, well, what's the difference between me right now and The Tonight Show? Because in early into COVID, The Tonight Show was just basically a Zoom call. <laughs> Yeah, really, right? No audience, and absolutely. So I was taping, you know, one to four interviews the average weekday, and I realized, hey, some of these people are kind of prominent. Um, hmm, well, how do I get on this station and this station? Wait, no exclusivity. I own my own content. So I started syndicating it, and it's now on weekly, like 30 to 40 stations. Also goes up on my Spotify and my Apple and et cetera. So it's basically the interviews I'm taping all the time and each episode's 28 to 29 minutes. So sometimes it'll be like 26 minutes of interviews uh, of one interview and then like three minutes of another spliced together. And uh, yeah, Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrow at Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, et cetera. It, give the listeners an idea because I mean you have had you've interviewed some enormous stars. Give the give the inter, the the listeners an idea of some of the people that you've interviewed, so we can get those listeners over to your Spotify to check these these interviews out. Thank you. It's it's really a mix of musicians, comics, actors, entertainers, people that you know, people that you don't know yet but will. That, did I sound like DLR there? People <laughs> you know and people do, you don't know yet. I don't care if you're Frank Sinatra, Drake, or Mickey Mouse. You know I mean? <laughs> That's so good, man. He's you know what he reminds me of when when I hear Roth talk in a way when you listen to interviews like that Joe Rogan one that went on for three hours, yeah. you know, yeah. both parts. Um, he reminds me of Paul Stanley, you know, or Gene <laughs> Simmons when they when they have those those. You ever seen uh, Craig Gass do? The Gene Simmons yes. and Paul. Oh my God! I always think Roth when I think of those. You know, because it just it could be like a steak, or it could be like a taco on the boardwalk, and you're like, "What? Yeah, <laughs> what are you talking about?" Like <laughs> now, Paul Stanley's his. Uh, thing, I'm a huge Kiss fan, but oh, it's like a self-loathing Kiss fan category. Okay, you, you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like you love Kiss, but you know all the musical atrocities that they've done. <laughs> You know, of all the work for hire deals that they've done and all the people who co-wrote songs that they really wrote, you know, you know about that stuff and the lip syncing, but you love Kiss. Oh, I, I do. Kiss ingrained to me, like when I was a kid, you know, and, I mean, Alive, when I first heard Alive, it was amazing. Hotter Than Hell is my favorite Kiss record. I love, yeah. I mean, I'm one of those guys. There's like three of my friends where we actually like the Elder. You know, I mean, I'm that. I'm Why that wouldn't you? It's Bob Ezrin. Come on. 
it, I love it. I mean, I'm, I mean, it's not a great record all the way around, but I don't think it deserves the hate it does. So, right. so, so tell me more about the Paul Stanley stuff. You interview uh, Paul? I got to interview Paul four or five years ago. He had this publicist who represents rock stars when they do like painting gallery exhibition shows. So it's like, okay. you can talk to Paul, but you have to talk to him about painting. Like, it's better than no Paul conversation. Right, right. And he was fine. Like, he wasn't the warmest, but he was fine. Uh, I've interviewed Gene twice and I met him another time or two. And it's kind of the opposite because growing up a Howard Stern fan, I thought Gene was going to be a prick. Yeah. And he's going to make fun of me. And no, he's he goes in and out of that character. He could do the like, condescending thing. And then when, after we turned off the recording, and I have proof of this, yeah. we're talking about Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys and vocal harmonies. And oh, nice. I, I was telling him like after the interview i said you know i've always respected your ear for vocal harmony and he takes out his phone i don't know if i've ever talked about this publicly i'm not going to get another gene simmons interview so (laughs) i'm not afraid (laughs) um he like i'm complimenting him about his vocal harmony uh technique and he takes out his cell phone and of course he has a rock and roll over kiss uh iPhone case on his phone. Of course phone. he does. Of course he does. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, shh, shh. Gene Simmons Bond, Pittsburgh. Like he was doing serious. <laughs> he pulls up a video of his band performing, uh, which he thought was a good performance. And I'm like, I really like, shh. <laughs> he, played, he played a performance that he was really proud of. And I think he, his love and passion for what he does gets confused for being egomaniacal. I think he's a big fan. He knows every trivia thing ever. He'll, like, I asked him the thing about Kim Fowley. He was like, trivia, do you know the first record that Kim Fowley produced? And like, was it this? He's like, no. And then he starts singing the song. He's that's a amazing. fan. That's amazing. He starts with alley-oop, alley-oop. Amazing, pretty sure man. i haven't recorded i have a relative that interviewed him and and did the whole you may approach now <laughs> he he does that but i really think it's like a pro wrestling bad guy thing that he could turn it off in a flash and be a relaxed decent human being it's just he doesn't want you to think he's weak now, Paul is kind of the opposite, where Paul on stage is like Mr. Nice Guy, and then we know about backstage that it's that Gene doesn't have a problem with Vinnie Vincent. It's that Paul does. Interesting. Interesting. Gene will work with Ace Fraley. Paul might not. But then they so, but, but it's weird because it's like the thing I always picked up from Kiss was Gene and Paul, the sober ones. And if you're sober, it's very hard to work with people on substances, depending on how you, you know, because playing in a band and things like that is when you're around people a lot, it's you're around their personalities, not just them as musicians, right? So I always got the vibe that it was Gene and Paul didn't want to work with those guys, you know, whether it be Peter and Ace because or Vinny because of the substance and stuff like that. I didn't know that it's more Paul than Gene. So that was told to me by like one of the biggest kiss memorabilia collectors ever who passed away a couple of years ago. I was randomly in the suburb of Columbus, Ohio. 
on a press trip and I was walking down the street. We had two hours. I see a sign for kiss in the middle of like a shopping center store. I'm like, what? <laughs> I walked in this guy just had the, his name was Todd, the nicest guy. He had, I think it was Parma, Ohio or something like that. He just had his whole kiss memorabilia on display. He rented a store just to put it in. No way. He's like, I'd rather people be able to see this than not. And I was grilling him because I don't think he was used to people saying more than like, I like rock and roll all night. So I was grilling him. He was telling me, he's like, oh yeah, Gene has no problem with Vinny. Like he sued him a bunch of times, but blah, 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 blah. But he likes Vinny. He's happy to work with Vinny. Wow. And and I once was sat at this dinner with, this is way off course, but I once sat at this dinner with Gene's attorney (laughs) and he was kind of cornered. So I'm like, Okay, it's my chance to ask every kiss question ever. Oh, that's amazing. And he told me that whether allegedly, allegedly, because I don't want Vinnie Vincent to hear this and sue me. Right, right. Allegedly, that Vinnie Vincent had a business of hiring an attorney to sue kiss, losing, and then suing that attorney for malpractice and getting a settlement over and over and over again. Oh, wow. I do not know if this is true. So allegedly, yeah, wow. that happened. Wow, that's insane, man. It's I can't even, you know, because it's funny when you think about, you know, a record I, I really dug when it came out, Revenge. You know, Vinny, Vinny's got his, his, his fingerprints on that record, man. You know, yeah. what he wrote, he wrote Unholy and he wrote... He, wait, he wrote like what three three tunes off that record, didn't he? Yeah, he came back. <laughs> yeah, just didn't come back, come back, come back, right? And and uh, and I really feel like that was a shot in the arm for Kiss. You know, that really, sure. really kind of helped them. You know, in that. And then you know everything. You know, there was ob- that obvious they needed to go back to the makeup. It was just inevitable. Just like just like tying everything back together it was obvious. Roth needed to go back to Van Halen at some point and whatnot. You saw? Did you see Van Halen with Roth? When I never got to see Van Halen live, but I've seen Roth six times. And then after Vegas, maybe it's seven times after Vegas, it's going to be 11 or 12. <laughs> Did you see the uh, Mambo Slambers? Did you see him? Doing Wish. I've, I saw an EPK video that got pulled a little bit before the Vegas 2020 residency. I know uh-huh. footage does exist of it. I asked Mitch Schneider about this. But it seems like Dave is the gatekeeper of it. And then I also heard that there's a full there's a full pro shot of Eamon's smile too, right? Was that exclusive, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you know how many guitar people would just lose their mind to be able to see a, a, a full shot multi-camera? Oh, my God. Because that, you know, I remember I was too young to see that show. And I remember seeing, you know, with YouTube, wonderful YouTube, um, getting to see the Detroit show, the 86 show. Oh, yeah. I was watching that on YouTube this week. Yes. Where, where he, they stop in the middle. I think I forget what song it is. They stop in the middle and the crowd doesn't stop for like five minutes cheering. And it just I, that just had to have been a magical. I mean, that had to have been. Detroit Rock City. Detroit is responsible for a lot of our bands being able to continue their careers in like bad times. Like Alice Cooper, who's at Detroit MTV special in the 80s. Kiss was nobody until Detroit, etc. It's really true. It's really, really true. Can I ask you, um, do you have any advice for listeners who are inspiring writers or podcasters? You got any advice? 
I mean, if they reach out to me with questions, I, I'm happy to answer. I'm used to doing that because people did that for me when I was 16, 17, 18, 19. Like, hey, how do I do this? But it is mostly rooted in like, what is it you're trying to do? And break it into steps and work backwards and put in a little effort in the time. And also, if you say you're going to do something, do it. Uh, I'll email you. Email, email that person. I'm going to write that up. So do that. You know, the actual writing is such a little part of the whole game. Uh, do you ever see that show on FX called You're the Worst? No, I haven't. It's basically about a couple of dysfunctional people in the early 30s. But uh, one of the main characters is this like British novelist. And everyone's like, why aren't you writing today? And he's like, the writing has nothing to do with the writing. There's a lot of elements to the whole thing. So the best writers who make it are not the best writers <laughs> per se if no sure. if you catch what i'm saying same thing, to, with mu- same thing with musicians yeah makes complete yeah. sense when you yeah. uh <sighs> podcast wise how hard do you find it or do you even i don't even know this is probably an interesting question to ask you how much do you promote the podcast i promote my Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrow, it's much more than I do the DLR cast because I know that the DLR cast is more of a niche kind of thing. It it finds the people who are meant to hear this. Like you would not promote this to Greta Van Fe- uh, Fleet fans. No offense to Greta Van Fleet fans, sure. but they don't have the history of loving Yankee Rose. <laughs> oh, that's a great point, man. That's a really good point. The reason why I ask this is. Like for me myself, you know, starting off with this podcast, you know, I, yeah. I know how we do it with the basketball podcast, but it seems like in this day and age, with all the new algorithms and things that are going on, it seems like it's a lot harder to try to get to people in terms of like getting Twitter followers, so then you can you know find a way to get to them um, without paying. And I don't mind paying, or and I'm sure other people don't, but. That's why I was curious. Like, are you? Do you manage all your social media accounts? And when you do, how much time do you put into managing them? For DLR cast, it's just kind of like new episode is out. Put it up on that Twitter, which Steve set up, and we both manage the Facebook account. I don't think we have one. I think it's just yeah. I promote it on my writer one, and I send it to the artist or the interview subject and go, hey, it's out. And I'm going to say like one out of every eight of them actually promotes it. But as time goes on, somebody notices the show and then they check out all the back episodes. So it's that long tail Seth Godin kind of effect. If I were depending on this for my living, I think I'd be a lot more proactive. I'd try to have a booker. I'd be sending out thank you cards and gift baskets and, and, uh, trying to book live events. But to me, it's not like that for a, a Roth, podcast because sure. pretty much everything we're talking about happened already right. but and you, you love doing was, it too i loved it it's passionate i don't i don't want to kind of ruin it by being a business if that makes sense a lot of people would hear that and fight me and go like if you love what you do you don't work a day in your life i i don't believe that one how do you feel about that cliche i, I feel like it's kind of funny because you you're working no matter what. I feel like it's better than yeah. flipping burgers at McDonald's or something like that, yeah. right? Like you're you're doing what you want to do, which is rad. But yeah, I feel like you do have to put in the time. I know with this podcast, 
I only really want to interview people that I want to interview, and it's a passion thing for me. So when it be, starts yeah. to not become fun, then I don't want to do it anymore. You know what I mean? But I, I want it to get out there and just kind of see what happens is, is what I'm shooting for, you know? And anytime I get somebody like yourself or Karabi or, you know, oh, I've, 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 nice. had, I've had some great people on the show so far just being two, three months into the show, um, it's exciting for me because that to me is like, all right, this is cool. I get to talk. I mean, I got to talk. Dave Lee Roth, I got to talk Guitar World, I got to talk wrestling, I got to talk all these things that I love, and 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 with somebody that's knowledgeable about it too. So it's, you know, and and I know when people listen to this pod, they'll really dig it because they're getting to hear a lot of a lot of cool stories that might resonate with them, and that's what I did with your podcast, where, you know, I've I have definitely fallen down rabbit holes. I'm sure you've done it too, where you you listen to one podcast and you're like. Oh, that's cool. I wonder if there's, and then you, oh, whoa, there's this one there, you know, so I've, I've listened to the, the Dave and Dave, you know, Van Halen podcast, and I've, I've definitely listened to some other ones for sure, but I've done what you just said. I've definitely went backwards and listened to pretty much all of your episodes. And the thing I noticed, Thank you. And if I can give you a compliment is when I go back, I'm not just listening to the episodes of people that I know. I'm inter- I'm listening to every episode because I'm like, oh, that's cool. The person that designed the 84 cover that, you know what? I bet you that's going to be the story or like, hey, this person or that person. Because here's the thing, like we talked about earlier in the, in the pod, the people that you don't know are probably going to be the ones that give you the best interview when it comes to that stuff. You know what I mean? For the most part, like, you know, there's been people that, you know, like the rocket one, I, I did not know him before that. And then to hear all those cool stories and how these guys are still relevant doing gigs, you know, like, like Brett yeah. Tuggle. I had no idea Brett Tuggle was, was in Fleetwood Mac. Tuggle or Tug. If you know him, I don't know him. I can't call him Tug. One day I'm hoping I can call him Tug. Right. Right. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of work to, to be able to call him Tug. Right. Hey, Tug. You know, no, he's still Brett Tuggle. He never stopped working. Most people would be like, you know, I wrote just like Paradise. That's just like one credit. And and he was in and out of the the Roth band a lot. And he was supposed to music direct the 2020 Vegas residency. So everyone wants to work with Brett Tuggle, yet he's super low key, which is kind of admirable. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree, and I loved hearing a lot of those stories from that from that pod. That you, I mean, his his name seems to come up a lot on the DLR. Oh cast. yeah, you know what I mean. Which which I think is really cool because I just remember him doing the keys on those records, but I didn't realize how great of a singer he was and guitar player. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that either. I mean, that's a valuable person to have in your band, especially. If you're a guy like Dave where you're not writing a lot of your own songs per se, having somebody like that or like a John Five, which I can't wait for that interview, by the way. I cannot wait oh, to listen thank to that you. one. That's going to be just phenomenal. It's not the most comprehensive, but John Five is just so great as a person, as a player, et cetera. But, but going back to something that you were saying before, you know, I can't tell you how many interviews that I've taped over the, over the years where you know, this person has 11 million TikTok followers. You're like... This is going to be the interview that puts me over the top. This is going to break me huge. And then he's like, six people watch it. And you're like, less people watch it? <laughs> yep. And then, like a couple of weeks ago, when I spoke to Ian Pace from Deep Purple, I'm like, oh boy, well, it was cool to speak to him. And that got more views than like anything that I'd done in the previous like four months. Oh, wow. And you just sometimes don't know. Some fan bases are all about the internet and following every project and everything. 
And other things are just fake follower numbers or they like it this week because they did one dance with Jimmy Fallon or something like that. You never know what it is. It's really a long-term game. So I'd impart that advice as, as the interviewer writer, eh, find what you like and keep doing that instead of chasing, uh, what, what are the dances called? Uh, the TikTok dances. Or... Oh God, I'm so out of the loop on that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I claimed a TikTok account just in case, but I don't think I've ever posted anything. On there. I, I know, I, I know, I need to for my guitar teaching business, and I just—it's like the same thing that like we just talked about earlier. It's like I, I just want to do things authentic. And yeah. for me, like I had a guy on who talked about NFTs and all these other things, and gave me a lot of great knowledge. But it's like it's just not me. You know what I mean? Like, and the, he's yeah. like, you really should have a TikTok and do these like, you know, things where you where you watch videos and you critique them. And I'm like, it's just not me. You know what I, I mean? I get that advice. I I've gotten advice from from close friends who go like, you totally should quit the PI thing and totally full time podcasting. That's what you want to do. It's like, no, I I don't want the responsibility of having to do things to get traffic. I just want to have natural conversations with great people about the stuff that I'm into. And when you do that, and then somebody like you finds out about something I did, that is so much more rewarding than here's a $75 fee to read a blue apron ad. You know? Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> that totally, makes totally makes sense, man. And I tell you right now, one of the things I want to thank you for, besides your time today, oh my God, you were completely generous with your time. But I want to thank you for how quick you were getting back to me email-wise. Uh, for better and for worse, I'm a zero inbox guy. You know what I mean by that? The yes, I do, and that's very impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it definitely takes a toll on other things that I do, but I like to i like for people to feel like they were heard in general now that doesn't mean once somebody eventually tries to cancel me for something i said in high school <laughs> right right. it doesn't mean i'm going to be happy to hear from it then but if somebody's taking the time to listen to something i've done why wouldn't i take the time to write back to them it, it just perplexes me people that don't have like a lot of people don't and it's a shame too because honestly i was so stoked that you got back to me so fast and you were like yeah let's do it and you were just really cool about it and i was like man this is awesome because i think the weird thing about podcasts is when you listen to them it's like you almost feel like you know the person because you've listened totally. to enough of the episodes you know so for you to just be like yeah man let's do it i was like that's really cool same thing with karabi like his manager like got back to me and was like, yeah, you know, I, th I think, I think, you know, John will want to do that. And I'm like, that's awesome. And it was just, and John was cool as hell. Cause the you know, same thing with the marriage, like there's going to be no video. It's just going to be audio, blah, blah, blah. You know, not too many questions about Motley Crue, you know, maybe one question about Motley Crue. I'm like, man, that's cool. I like a lot of his other stuff. I'm into it. And then John was cool as hell and talked Dude, he talked probably about 30 minutes about Motley Crue, and I didn't even ask him the questions. I wanted to be really respectful. I'm like, here's my yeah. one Motley Crue question because I know you talk about it too much, you know, ask about it too much. And he just was like, man, he was awesome. So I really appreciated your time today. I want to uh, make sure that I take care of you before the end of the show. So can you please plug everything that you got going on for my listeners? Because like we talked about before, by the end of the show, I want my, my people that are listening to search out you more, listen to some interviews that you do, check out the DLR podcast. So can you please plug yourself a little bit? You're too kind, Eric. Well, 
if you put my last name Paltrow, it's P-A-L-T-R-O-W-I-T-Z into the Google machine, most of it comes up. It's me. If you, if you see Adam, that's my brother, world-renowned choral director Adam Paltrowitz, but no, Darren Paltrowitz. And so there's the Paltrow cast with Darren Paltrowitz. There's the DLR cast. Paltrowitz.com, that is mine. I was the first forward-thinking sibling on that end to claim it. Nice, so smart. I, I think my siblings have will have to buy that for me one day if, if any of them are pursuing stuff. But uh, yeah, that's that's the lead to most of my interviews. And if anyone has questions about writing, if I gladly can answer that, I will. If anyone has leads for Roth-related people, I'll talk to them. Writing projects always open. PI stuff, hey, hire me. I'll do it. I don't. I can't guarantee it's cheaper, but the bro rate happens when when it's a cause I believe in. Nice, nice. I I so enjoy talking to you today, man. And I and I really, like I said, I really love the DLR cast. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up the pro wrestling book. I'm eight hey, now. Can <laughs> no can obligation. I, can I ask you this? Um, I, I definitely am a Kindle reader. I'm I'm so guilty of that. Sorry. I know it's probably like a faux pas with writers, but oh no. If if I reach out to you, can I get um can I purchase the book from you and get a signed copy? Is that possible? I don't know how to do that, but we can figure that out over email. Whatever you need, whatever you want, Eric. That's you're, you're more than worth it. Ah, dude, you are way too kind, my friend. Thanks again for coming on the show. I super appreciate it. And uh, stay safe out there. It's a crazy world right now and whatnot. And and please keep the DR cast going, man. I, I so enjoy it. Thank you. And if you wind up in Vegas, let's meet up there. If anyone listening to this, seeing this, winds up in Vegas, let me know you'll be there. We'll say hey. And you'll watch me get escorted out of the show. Uh <laughs> due to fear from david lee Roth. oh my god that's amazing <laughs> thanks again for coming on the show darren i super appreciate it buddy thanks eric talk to you soon man